Daily Gazette Company presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Sports Editor, Ken Shot. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast studio in Schenectady, New York. We have another great show for you. We'll start some of our NFL previews with uh, Rob Motti, who covers the league for the Associated Press. We'll talk about some of the off-the-field issues, and I'll give you my picks for the season. The Saratoga horse racing season concluded on a wet, muddy Monday. And to help us review the meet is the Capital Region's premier horse racing writer, the Gazette's Mike McAdam. Mike, uh, welcome back to the podcast, and have you dried out from Monday? I've tried out, and um, actually, I'm I'm re-energizing now because we were kind of running on fumes by the end of the meet. You know, this happens every year. You you get to Travers. Travers week is such an intense, long, busy week, and then then there's this like decompression the final week of the meet. And I think a lot of people are suffering from Saratoga fatigue, and you, and you just kind of like I, I I won't say we're going through the motions, but we are seeing like the the end of the the tunnel here and uh so we finally reached it and we came out on the other side uh unscathed and uh, a little muddy but uh um none the worse for the wear so yeah saw some pretty good things this year yeah and a record setting me too for the 154th edition uh you know, the betting handle attendance numbers uh had to be the new york race racing so she has to be thrilled uh, record uh, 878 million 211,963 in all sources handle what a what a meet! Yeah, and some of that was mine too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> not a lot, um, not a huge portion of it. Um, they were um, uh, like last year when they had eight hundred fifteen thousand in all sources handle, and for people who don't know, that's on track plus all the simulcast people around the country and around the world who are bet. You know, they they tabulate that. Um, so last year was the first time they went past eight hundred thousand. Um, and then they blew past 815,000, a million, I'm sorry, man, I'm getting my (laughs) units wrong here. Let's not do that. Um, 878 million. So they crushed last year's record up 7.7%, um, a clear sign that the Saratoga brand is alive and well and, and crushing it on a yearly basis. Um, I will point out that, um, uh, David Grenning from the Daily Racing Forum had an interview with Dave O'Rourke, who's the president and CEO of Naira, that, that um, ran yesterday, where um, Dave O'Rourke threw the B word out there. That is billion. They're they're foreseeing a, a point sometime, maybe within the next five years, where the Saratoga handle will hit a billion dollars for the meat, um, and that's as they accelerate their. Um, you know their their presence on other betting platforms like on the various uh, sports betting websites um you know uh, where they're trying to get a foothold there and they that, that's sort of a that's in its embryonic stages so they think they're they're they believe that if they you know have a stronger foothold there that you know there's no reason why they shouldn't hit a billion at some point maybe in the next five years so it's pretty scary when you start throwing the b word around there but also again it's an indication of how strong this meat is how strong it is not only from a racing standpoint just a sportsman standpoint but from a from a betting standpoint it's humongous um as far as the attendance they were they were uh one million seventy five thousand which is the seventh year in a row that they've um i take it back i i, I 
kicking myself for using the word attendance because I'm very careful to say paid admission because, you know, they count season passes. And, and every major sports venue does this, and, and I get that. So if the if they aren't, it's, they're not exactly counting fannies in the seats. They're counting paid admission. Yeah. So season passes, people don't show up. And we all know this. So this is the seventh year not counting 2020, obviously, when fans weren't allowed on the grounds. Um, so the average daily attendance was 26,890 for 40 racing days. Um, way higher than, obviously, closing day on Monday, which was over 17,000. And as I told you before we came on, uh, I'm going to have to go back and look at the recap sheets. That Monday's Labor Day closing day attendance might have been the smallest crowd of the whole meet, and, you know, the weather had a lot to do with that, of course. Um, I'll just quickly throw a couple other numbers out there just to show you. This is this is a reflection of um, why probably the attendance was strong again, and the handle was very, very strong. Uh, they ran 417 races over the course of 40 racing days only 16 of the turf races were rained off the turf that's a very very small number as opposed to last year when 45 turf races were taken off and that's with the average field size being pretty negligible difference between last year and this year um and what that tells you that i think that's partially responsible for why the betting handle was humongous because the the racing product is a lot better when you can run those turf races on the turf and you're not, you know, what happens like we saw on Monday is a couple, you know, at least one of the turf races was rained off to the main track, which means half the field scratches and you'll get like a couple, one or two MTOs, main track only drawing into the field. And it's just not as appealing of a betting race when they're, they're not running on the surface that they're supposed to. So um, just wanted to throw that out there. And by the way, when we do those number comparisons on um uh races rained off the turf between last year and this year it's almost the exact same number of total races it was 417 this year and 416 last year so um i i think you have to throw that into the equation a little bit as far as the handled number that we saw yeah just the the the, the money numbers just amaze me in fact you you know don't, I'm not getting political here, but just you know, we're in an environment where the economy's sort of uh, not great right now. But geez, I mean, people are willing to spend their money. Yeah, and um, they actually um, they broke last year's record on Saturday, so they had like Sunday and Monday's cards basically pile on. So at some point, so after Saturday's card, they had already broken the record of 815 million. So. Sunday and Monday was essentially frosting on the cake that um, got it up to that 878 million number. Uh, the 878 also included, I, we, we should mention, um, a record of 55,559, uh, 55,559,315 55, 55, that was all sources wagering on Traverse Day alone, which was a record. I think the previous record was 52 million, and that's with... Um, 49,762 in paid admission. Um, the, the, the capacity or the sellout number is 50,000 at Saratoga. When they hit 50, they stopped selling tickets. So they came very close to that on Travers Day. Yep. Well, let's look at the, uh, the, the jockey and uh, training titles. Irad Ortiz Jr. Wins, wins his fourth jockey championship and the trainer, Chad Brown, gets the fifth training title. Of course, uh, Chad Brown surrounded some controversy uh, even though his operation ran smoothly, 
while pending a legal issue, which uh, had been was scheduled for, for a court hearing on uh, last Friday, but it got postponed. Um, of course, it was an alleged domestic violence incident on August 17th that led to him to being arrested. Uh, you know, talk about Ortiz, talk about Brown, the, the impact they had, especially with Ortiz, you know, missing a few races because of suspension. Yeah, um, starting with Irad, um, he, he wasn't the only one who got suspended, right. by the way. Yeah. There's a, there a cluster of like four guys that were suspended for three days, sort of concurrently in that um it was sort of like around Travers weekend. Um, Dylan Davis had got banged for seven days earlier in the meet. Um, and it's pretty typical. I mean, it's, it was just kind of funny that there were like four of them that are the New York State Gaming Commission kind of penalized around the same time, even though the incidents were for, for careless riding earlier in the meet. Um, so it didn't really hurt Irat. I will say that his his 55 win number isn't humongous. Based on, I mean, it's a very good number, yeah. but what was more interesting to me was the next closest person was 40, and that was a tie between Flavian Pratt and Luis Saez, who won the riding title last year. Um, just the gap between Irad and the next closest jockey in win totals was that was big and sort of eye-opening to me. Um, I will say that Joel Rosario, who had an absolutely spectacular meet setting a record for winning 12 graded stakes as a jockey um wasn't there the last couple days he, he was sort of in second place um he was drawn away to kentucky downs which is near nashville tennessee and they have just like some ridiculous it's a very short meet at kentucky downs but they have some ridiculously high purses there they have five races they're running this saturday that each are worth a million dollars in purses and that's drawing people away um and rosario was supposed to be there on sunday and it got rained out so then he stayed on monday as well um which you know meant he fell off the map as far as the jockey title at Saratoga, Irad was so far ahead, though, that he mathematically had it clinched after Sunday's card. So yesterday was another frosting on the cake kind of day for that number. Um, so he had a couple wins, including a big one uh, aboard Forte and the hopeful grade one uh, hopeful and finished up with 55. Um, and again, going back to the gap between him and the next closest people, um, Pratt and Saez, this is the deepest jockey colony in the, in the country. It, they're fiercely competitive in the racing, but they're also fiercely competitive off the track as far as their agents trying to line up the best horses for their guys. Because everybody, you know, it's like an all-star lineup in that room, bolstered, bolstered even more by Flavian and Pratt deciding, guess what, I'm, I'm not going to dominate California like I have for the last five years. I think I'll go to Saratoga and try to get a foothold there, which he did very well at, but it speaks to Irad's um, the great meet that he had, um, that he won 55, and the next closest were 40, um, and and it wasn't just quantity. Um, Irad uh, was on nest for the coaching club American Oaks and Alabama wins, and also life is good for the Whitney. So um, some really good stuff there from Irad. Um, as far as Chad Brown, he had 42 winners to 38 for um, Todd Pletcher, who also had an absolutely spectacular meet between the two of them. Um, it's interesting to note, back to the whole weather thing, I mean, we had such a dry meet, you know, with only 16 turf races rained off. Of Chad Brown's 42 winners, 30 of them were in turf races. So that tells you something right there. His barn is heavy, heavily reliant on turf racing at all levels, graded stakes all the way down, and 
30 of his 42 winners were on the turf. Um, and he benefited a lot from, um, from having, you know, the, the turf races being able to run on the grass as consistently as they were. Um, highlights for him were winning his whatever gazillionth Diana handicap. He had the top four finishers in the race led by in Italian, uh, six in the, in there's six total horses in the race. He had four of them and they took the top four spots. Um, the downer note for him was the Travers because he had three very good legitimate shots in the Travers a, a race that, as a mechanical native, he desperately craves winning that thing. Um, and he had he had the Preakness winner early voting. He had Zandon, who's a grade one winner, and um, Artorias, who's sort of like an up-and-coming, you know, horse with a lot of potential. And the three of them, none of them finished higher than third place in an eight-horse Travers field. So that was kind of a... Um, dis- well, I, it was a disappointment at the time. I, I asked him about this uh, Sunday, Monday morning, um... And he said, no, the, the horse that beat us it was so clearly the best horse in the three. We'll get to him later in the three-year-old division that, no, it's not a disappointment. But he said, if we had gotten beat a nose, then it would have been a disappointment. But the, the best horse was the best horse that day. And like I said, we'll get to him later. As far as Chad's legal issues, um, it would have been really awkward for that court, or initial second court date to occur during the meet. You know, he had already been arraigned on August 18th, uh, which was a, you know, fun times. And then, um, uh, and I guess this is pretty typical of the process for the second. I, I think the second one is where he's supposed to be formally charged um, with the uh, the obstruction of breathing charges, um, uh, misdemeanor. Um, so it got postponed to September 16th, which is two Fridays from when it was originally scheduled. And we'll come back and see what happens there. You know, I'm not really going to try to predict what's going to happen. Um, I know from having covered the arraignment that his legal team is very confident and cocky that they're, they're going to, you know, the judge is going to see things their way. However, that, um, you know, manifests itself. I don't know. So, but we'll, we'll be there and we'll see what happens. And, uh, but in the meantime, um, you know, I mean, like the Saratoga meet itself kind of avoided some awkward, bad side publicity. The fact that they they postponed this thing to the 16th. Right, let's get back on the track here with, uh, yeah, Saratoga once again delivers, uh, you know, consistently the best of star-studded racing in the country. You know, some of the top performances we saw included Nest sweeping the Coaching Club America Oaks and Epicenter uh, winning the Travers in commanding fashion. Yeah, let's start with, the, and, and these are the, the best three-year-old filly in the country and the best three-year-old male in the country kind of running parallel tracks during the meet and winning the, you know, the signpost races that they're supposed to win if they are, in fact, the best. We'll start with the Philly Nest, who was absolutely crushed the Coaching Club America Oaks and then was even more impressive, if, if possible, in the Alabama, both times beating Secret Oath who had been kind of the leader of the division in the springtime when she won the Kentucky Oaks for Hall of Fame trainer D. Wayne Lucas. And then, but Nest was, was kind of lurking the whole time and then has really put together a tremendous campaign. As far as I'm concerned, she, she clinched the Eclipse Award when she won the uh, Alabama, especially doing it in such dominating fashion and, and with Secret Oath being in the field. Speaking of Lucas, he turned 87 years old on Friday, and he was one of the... Like, it seems weird to say this, that he was one of the emergent 
human stars of the meet because we've known Wayne and he's been around for 42 years or whatever it is and been coming to this meet, but not in recent years because of, you know, COVID prevented him from traveling. You know, he's based in Kentucky. Everybody knows him. He's probably the most familiar figure on the track. Um, he's been in the Hall of Fame for 15 years, whatever it is. Um, but in recent years, he has not brought a string to Saratoga. And this year he did. He brought 16 horses and just said, this is where I'm going to be. And Secret Oath was the star of his barn. And the amazing thing is that Lucas had a great, great meet. And Secret Oath, his by far his best horse, got her butt kicked twice, yeah. which seems kind of counterintuitive, but his two-year-olds really stepped their, up their game, and he won another race on closing day, and it was just kind of a joy for the fans to see this guy that is so recognizable and, you know, in the white cowboy hat. And every time he wins a race, he just randomly grabs like four or five little kids out of the crowd and brings them into the winner's circle and gives them a thrill to be in the, you know, the winner, uh, you know, the winning photo and everything. Um, so that was, that was a pretty cool thing. And, and he was just fun to talk to. So I, I mean, I've talked to him more times at this meet than probably the last 10 years combined, just cause he had good horses and, and he's a, great talker um and he's good for the game uh, again at, at the age of 87 still gets on the pony every morning yeah. um but we covered nest already and and uh, and then on the male side epicenter did very similar to what nest did um i i said this on your podcast before i i've thought all along that epicenter was the leader of the three-year-old male division and he he backed that up he finished this, you know, got wrenching second in the Kentucky Derby, got wrenching second in the Preakness. They regrouped, they got him, they gave him a little bit of a freshening, backed off on the aggressive training just to get him right for the Saratoga meet. And man, was he right. Um, he beat a very good field. I already mentioned the three from Chad Brown. Um, he beat Cyberknife in there, a couple other good horses. And um, and he, he may have clinched the three-year-old Colt Eclipse Award while we're at it. Um, just based on those two races at Saratoga, backing up the good stuff that he had done in the springtime, despite not winning in the Derby and Preakness. So um, it was kind of interesting that we had like two parallel universes in the, the three-year-old di- respective divisions, and they Nest and, and Epicenter kind of kind of achieved the same thing within their uh, category. Mm-hmm. It was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, another highlight was uh, Life is Good winning the Whitney, but uh, I guess the elephant in the room comes when it comes to the national scene is Flightline, uh, who dominated the Pacific Classic at Del Mar on Saturday. It looks like they're on a collision course in the uh, what could be an epic Breeders' Club Classic in November. Yeah, um, Life is Good won the Whitney and kind of validated his standing as the monster on the East Coast. And I use the word monster because when we were talking to Irad Ortiz um, Monday morning before the card started, since he had you know already clinched the jockey title, we went in and just grabbed him before the card just to get that done. And um, we mentioned that um, we referred to Flightline as the monster who just <laughs> dominated the uh, Pacific Classic by 19 and a quarter lengths. Drew a 126 buyer speed figure for that performance, which is the second highest since uh, the Daily Racing Forum started publishing those numbers back in the 1990s. And um, but uh, I read said, well, I think I have a monster, too, you know, referring to life is good. So there's two monsters. And um, hopefully, I mean, 
There's no question that Flightline is going to the Breeders' Cup Classic. I think there's still a little bit of mystery about what they're going to do with Life is Good, especially in light of um, Flightline's performance in the Pacific Classic. I mean, it was so, like, this horse is in a different universe right now. And the Life is Good camp, you know, they're, you know, they're wondering maybe gold Breeders' Cup dirt mile instead of the classic. I mean, I, it, it, there's a lot of things swirling around. They, I'm sure they don't want to look like they're ducking flight line and, and they're honorable sportsmanlike people and probably would love to see the matchup between these, um, between these two monsters. Um, I'm looking forward to it for sure. And as a matter of fact, um, planning to go to the Breeders' Cup this year um, for the first time in a long time, just because it's kind of an easier, cheap trip. Um, I'm going to take vacation, and our my friend Gene Kirschner from the Buffalo News, who did a wonderful job, by the way, handicapping for us, picking races every day, and wound up with the highest total of four guys that we had doing it this year. Um, we're going to drive down from Buffalo to Lexington for the Breeders' Cup in November, and um, fingers crossed we're going to get to see life is good against Flightline, because that will be epic. I mean, right now, Flightline looks like the better animal, but they, you know they still got to load them into the starting gate. And you know, fi- again, fingers crossed. Let's see these two, you know, East Coast, West Coast. You know, you got that whole storyline. Um, love to see these two butt heads against each other in the Breeders' Cup Classic. Yeah. Well, you, you obviously did a great job, Mike, covering the track. We also should uh, mention uh, our photographer, Erica Miller, does a great job every year with the photography. Thank you. And, yeah, I had that written down on my pad here. I'm looking right at it. Um, Erica, just a wonderful person to work with. Um, she and I were, you know, there for workouts at quarter after five in the morning, more than a couple times when we knew the big guns were going to be out there going out with the first set. Um, shortly after the sun came up, or I think in some cases the sun wasn't up yet, but um, she does a great job. She knows her way around. She knows the people. She gets stuff. She she gets good enterprise. Um, you know she'll she'll like the eight forty five um set that goes out on the main track every day is always an important one to look at because that's right after the renovation break so the track is in its pristine condition and so the you know the big guns like to send their big guns out there at that time just to have the best track condition and there were days where she she'd show up at 8 45 and just shoot everything and then go back and figure out who was who and so we had a great like um we had a great um, catalog of photos to use and pick and and you know of of important horses not just random joe blow out there uh, she did a great job with that and has a great eye and just loves the sport and and loves shooting it and is a tremendous asset for us um between her and you know we really bolstered our coverage if you weren't picking up the gazette every day you were missing out when it came to the track season i don't say that because i'm in there obviously <laughs> but we had um my friend Teresa Gennaro was writing weekly stuff for us and kind of hit some different angles and will springstead was doing a q a every week and um so we we really hammered it hard this year and i think you know i like to think the the readers appreciated the extra effort and, and just having some different people involved and of course erica's great stuff as usual yeah um, we're going to be talking National Football League in the next segment, but I figure I'd give it a chance to talk about your Dolphins and what is, what, what's going to happen this year. Um, I'm really, really looking forward to it, uh, much more so than last year. I mean, I, I'm not a Tua 
Tonga Vailoa hater. I'm a Tua still need to be convinced her. And, uh, but I think they went out and got a bunch of pieces in the offseason. Everybody talks about Tyreek Hill, but they bolstered their offensive line so that it just he'll have the, the opportunity. Plus, he's overall is in. He should be 100% off all his injuries that he had coming out of Alabama. Um, so the opportunity exists this year to see if he's the guy that can turn you into a contender. Uh, really fun, interesting team to watch. Really looking forward to it. Um, I will say I was looking at their schedule, and um, they, they're going to need to win early and often because their December schedule is an absolute meat grinder. They got four out of five road games, including I don't I can't remember which one is the home game, but they're playing like Green Bay, New England, um, and I can't remember the other three teams. But I was looking at their December, and I was like. What God did they displease to get tossed with this like meat grinder of a December? And and four, like I said, four or five of them are on the road. So they they if they want to have good playoff positioning, they better win a lot of games in the you know the early parts of the season. Really looking, I'm I'm pumped up for them. Like I said, way more than than I was last year or the year before. Okay, here's the schedule. They go to San Francisco on December fourth. They go then they stay out on the West Coast to face the Chargers the following week. Uh, they play Buffalo at Buffalo December 18th. So they need to go from California weather to upstate New York weather. Then they, yeah. go, then they go to Green Bay for Christmas Day. And then... Yeah, oh yeah, okay, it's all coming back no, to take, me now. Take, I, okay, I misspoke I, when I said New England because New England isn't going to be the, the bear and it, it's the Buffalo game that I was thinking. I misspoke when I said New England instead yeah. of Buffalo. Yeah, so um, well, Merry reverse. Christmas, Miami Dolphins. <laughs> yeah, let, let me um, reverse on that you're actually hosting Green Bay on Christmas Day. They go to New England for New Year's Day. and they, Yeah, yeah, right. And they close yeah. out at home against the Jets. So. I think I was repressing that, that I didn't remember it ex- exactly the way it was. But now that you mention it, yeah, it's coming back to me from that. I, I was looking at the schedule like a week or so ago, and I was like, wait, um, this December looks really, really difficult. Let's uh, let's win a few before that just to, like, get a couple in the tank. Because uh, if they go two and three over that five-game stretch, I think I might almost be satisfied with that. But we'll see how good they are, too. Well, Mike, then. maybe yeah. maybe they, we can have a more ambitious uh, objective there. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Uh, right before that uh, trip to San Francisco, they go they host Cleveland and Houston, so maybe there's two wins there. We'll take them, please. Put a, put a, chalk them up now because they're going to need them. <laughs> well, Mike, it's been a fun eight weeks doing this, and um, thank you for doing this. And uh, we'll talk more sports with you as the um, uh, year goes on. We and uh, well, thanks again. Thanks for having me, Ken. It was a pleasure. I, I, you know, I, I like coming on and talking about that stuff. And, and uh, you know, it, we got to see – Saratoga is just so consistent that you, you, there's never a down meet where you don't see cool stuff and, and you know, great horses. And that, that's sort of the definition of the place at this point. So, fun to talk about. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it, Mike. And uh, it builds a lot of the podcast minutes and, and great stuff. So, I appreciate it <laughs> All right, thanks, guys. All right, that's Mike McAdam. I'll talk the National Football League with Rob Motti of the Associated Press next on the Party Shots Podcast. It's been a trying year for parents. They've been confronted with countless challenges and have always risen to the occasion. If it isn't too much to ask... 
the 370,000 high school student athletes in New York have one last request. Please set an example. Disorderly fan conduct at high school athletic events is on the rise. It increasingly involves parents. There's no question that parents are passionate. There's no question they care about their children. But at a time when we're all wound a little more tightly than usual, it's worth remembering this about New York high school sports. Always be a good example. Stop unruly fan behavior before it starts. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Welcome back to the podcast. The NFL season kicks off Thursday, but there have been some stories off the field that have attracted attention. To discuss that, as well as previewing the season, is Rob Motti, the pro football beat writer for the Associated Press, and more importantly, a fine Philadelphia area native. Rob, uh, welcome to the podcast, and I appreciate you doing this. And uh, as we, we've been chatting back and forth in emails, uh, we talked about our Philly connection. It's uh, great to talk to a fellow Philadelphian area native. Hey, Ken, thanks for having me on. And, yeah, it, it is great to talk. It's a small world, isn't it, as, as we go back and forth and discuss some of our uh, our roots and, and growing up in, in a city, the city of brotherly love, and, and how it's changed over the years. But the passion there for sports is unlike no other. And, and as I uh, moved to Florida last year, I, I kind of see it here. You know, you got you got a great team in the Buccaneers. you got the, the Rays and the Lightning, but the – the passion in Philly, especially when it comes to sports radio and, and, and the fan base, it's just so different. It really is. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if there's anything quite like it, no matter where we go. Yeah, I've, I've been working up here since uh, August of 1990, and my son was born up here in 2000. Uh, he'll, he'll be turning 22 next month. And I raised him right. I raised my Philadelphia sports fan. He's got that passion. He listens to the sports talk shows down in Philly, especially uh, WIP. I mean, he's just inf- he's infatuated with sports. It's a it's amazing how much he sometimes a little too passionate. But I think we all get that every go overboard once in a while. That's <laughs> it. It's pretty cool. You know, I I was able to. I grew up on WIP. I worked there for a little bit, and and the last four years before I moved to Florida, I I had some. I did a couple shows a week on ninety seven five The Fanatic, mm-hmm. and, and to hear fans calling it like you, you would never have, no matter what time of year it is, I'd always have a full board of callers. I, I would you know you throw out a couple topics and people are calling in, and then I get, I go around the country and you listen to different sports radio stations and. A lot of syndicated, and, and a lot it's it's different. You don't have Joe in Kensington and, yeah. and and Mark in South Philly calling in so passionately, caring about like they'll they'll call and discuss the the third string linebackers and and whatever it may be. So uh, yeah, I, I think it set us up for where we are today, and and uh, it really helped uh, our, our our passion in, in our careers, Ken. Yeah. That's true. Very true. I you know, grew up in Philadelphia, as I said. You know, seen tickets to the Flyers, seen tickets to the Eagles. Went to the Phillies games with my grandfather. So it, it was, it was, it was like a, a just an incredible experience doing that. So, but let's uh, get into a talking football. I think a lot of us would like to talk. A lot of our listeners like to hear about the football instead of our Philly roots. But uh, I think the big story of the offseason was Deshaun Watson, and uh, he ends up getting an eleven game suspension. You covered the story. Uh, 
a lot during this uh, during that this time period. How did this get bungled? I mean, it seems like you know, the, the the judge who ruled on this only gave six games. Is like she, I mean, she said basically Watson this uh, behavior was one of the factors, but only only get six games to be with it and then settle for eleven. What what happened with this whole case? Uh, I think the initial judge and, and Sue L. Robinson looked at this case judicially. And from the standpoint of what she can do, from the standpoint of precedent, what players had been punished for in the past, uh, and what the rules in place are, and, and she felt that a six-game suspension it was, was what they can come to and she can rule on because of the personal conduct policy, um, the, the details, the information that they have about the case, and, and that's how she looked at it. And I, and I know a lot of people were upset, of course, at the six-game suspension that she handed down. There was a lot of emotion involved. And when you're a judge and you're in her shoes and in her position, she's got to look at the facts of the case, what she can do by the letter of the law, and in this case, the CBA. And she went from there. But as we know, the CBA is written uh, in a way where both sides negotiated that ultimately the NFL has final say and they were able to appeal that decision. Roger Goodell could have handed down whatever he wanted to and instead he passed it on to another independent arbiter, Peter Harvey, but they came to this they came to a settlement which I, I think was the best case scenario, Ken, for both sides because nobody wanted to see whether it was Peter Harvey and implementing a full year suspension or whatever he came to and then the union coming back and and then trying to take that to federal court and prolonging the process so i think both sides were uh, in agreement here and, and and found a way to reach a settlement to where it's it's 11 games it's a five million dollar fine in some ways, this hurts the Browns more, Ken, than had he been given a full year suspension because then his contract would have been – he would have been under contract for one more year. So now he's playing out this season but only available to them for six games. Um, I, I know there's been a lot of talk about how owners around the league felt about the contract that Deshaun Watson received the $230 million fully guaranteed, which was astronomical, kind of ludicrous, really, when you think about it. To reward somebody coming off of what he was accused of, and really someone who's never had deep playoff success, mm-hmm. and giving him that kind of contract. Like Deshaun Watson is a, a darn good football player he's not Tom Brady he's not Aaron Rodgers he's not Russell Wilson he hasn't won it all and I know that's part of what the team is around him and everything else that goes into it but the Browns are banking him banking on him being that guy but I think a major piece to this a major component and every time I spoke to league sources about this is the remorse factor they are insistent upon since day one that this is a young man who needs some help, who needs to get some uh, a psychological evaluations, whatever it may be that they want him to undergo some sort of treatment. And they included that in this settlement. And even after they reached that settlement, they, 
Deshaun Watson was still insistent upon, it, it wasn't real genuine remorse. And I, I think that there's going to be, he's going to have to come to, before the 11 games are up, a point where the NFL feels comfortable that he's attended these counseling, that he's undergone this treatment, and he handles it differently, or they may not reinstate him right away. I mean, Cleveland really, the Browns have taken, the organization has really taken a hit with this whole situation. I mean, they just seem to can't get out of their way. I mean, I mean what is the Browns' reputation like, like right now around the league and maybe with their own fan base? Well, I, I think the fan base is, I saw a little bit of this and a glimpse of this, the division among the fan base, when I, I would report whatever facts that I, I would um get throughout the whole three month, four month saga of covering this all all summer. And and then there would there would be fans who would respond on Twitter defending Watson and then looking at other cases and trying to deflect and then there are those who are just simply embarrassed and ashamed. So I think there's division among the fan base. There are those who just want the football player and they don't care what he did off the field. And I think that happens in all fan bases across the league, across sports, whenever you have a player who's accused of some sort of misconduct and bad behavior. And then there are those who, who look at it from a standpoint of whether they're, they're fathers of daughters, whether they're women, whatever it may be, and, 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 don't, and are ashamed to have this guy on their team. From an ownership standpoint, the Haslams have certainly come under fire and come under criticism for, me, for handing out that contract and, and doing so at, at a time when there was still all of this still needed to be resolved. And uh, I, I think what we've seen, however, Kyler Murray gets a contract. Russell Wilson just got the latest contract. There was the Aaron Rodgers one that preceded Deshaun Watson. There was some concern that now the Browns had set the bar with Deshaun Watson and the $230 million fully guaranteed. And now every QB is going to be getting fully guaranteed dollars in that range or above. But that has not happened. So could this be the exception rather than the new trend? It certainly seems that way because Russell Wilson's new contract with the Denver Broncos and I forget what the 160s plus million, however, whatever that number was, it fell short of it. Mm-hmm. He could have asked for more, but now it seems, and he's come under some criticism from people. I saw some agents wanted to criticize him because he should have held out for more to benefit other players, but didn't so he can help his team and win some more. But I, I do think there's a lot of people around the league in league circles who look at the Haslam's for what they did and, and aren't, None too pleased about it. Now, Watson has been accused, but he's not really been charged at all in any cases. Is that correct? Yeah, so it was no criminal charges. um, And two grand juries declined um, to to, uh, indict him on those those charges. However, uh, the civil matter was settled. There's still the one pending civil lawsuit that's out there that has not been settled. And we know there's a major difference between being charged criminally and charged or found guilty civil in a civil suit. And um, I, I think all of those details and, and, and all of the reporting that has come out about this case clearly indicates that it's disturbing behavior. Uh, uh, we don't know exactly what went on. 
but we know that there is a pattern, a recurring pattern of this disturbing behavior, and it's something that Deshaun Watson needs to really work on and, and learn from and grow from and improve upon. Yeah, he, I, Watson did not play at all last year, so in effect he had a de, de facto suspension. Yeah. When, he, when he returns uh, this year, it's going to be, ironically, on December 4th in Houston. I mean, to me, the NFL somehow gets all these storylines. They must have a point when they figure out the schedule. But, uh, <laughs> but in all seriousness, though, Deshaun, I mean, almost two years off. I mean, how is he going to look? Yeah, that's and that's a great question. We don't know, and you got to look at it from the Browns' perspective now as you go into this season. A year that many had them being a, a, a legitimate contender in the division. I, I never really thought of them as a Super Bowl contender. It, it's a loaded AFC, but a strong contender in the division. And now suppose in the first 11 games, Jacoby Brissett, who has had some success as a quarterback in the NFL, he, he's, he's, you probably would look at him as a, a top backup in the league. He, he's not somebody that is considered a, a Super Bowl caliber quarterback, but he could step in. So what if he leads into a seven and four record in that in those eleven games and he's playing well? Uh, you paid Deshaun Watson all this money. He's got to play as soon as he comes back. But there that that could cause some issues in a locker room because teams rally around the guys who are there. And and, and I'm sure that there are some Browns players who aren't all that excited about what Deshaun Watson was accused of and, and everything that that transpired. And it's going to be interesting, Ken, to see how these 11 yeah. weeks play out. And if the, if the Browns are eight and three, how do they handle that? And now, obviously, if they got a losing record, now you hand it over to Deshaun Watson. And there's no way they can't give the guy the, the football and, and start him in week 12 in his first game back. But what if they're 9-2? I, I don't know. I don't anticipate that happening. But I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out, how Jacoby Brissett handles 11 games as a starter, and, and how the entire scenario unfolds. I don't think Deshaun Watson is a savior for this franchise, although they paid him to be like one. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if they're at 5-6 and six struggling to get in the playoffs, I, I don't foresee him stepping in there having not played, as you said, all of last year. And the first 11 games of this year, he's going to have some rust. He's got to shake some of that off. And it may take two or three games when you might not be able to afford a loss at that critical juncture of the season. Yeah. Well, let's go a little bit east up to upstate New York in uh, Buffalo. And uh, they had an issue with their punter that they drafted, Matt Ariza. Uh, He was cut after uh, it was learned that he was accused of gang raping a teenager in a civil lawsuit while he was at the uh, San Diego State. Uh, what's the latest? I mean, you wrote a piece analyzing that the Bills let this whole situation fall through the cracks. They didn't do really do their due diligence. Uh, what happened? How did this? How did they miss this alleged situation? Yeah, Ken, and, and and this was one that was very disturbing as well. When you look at this, the details that had started to come out. And as we piece those together and you realize that the Bills had learned of some kind of, some sort of misbehavior. They didn't have, they say they didn't have all the exact details, but they knew that there was something that Matt Ariza was going to be accused of civilly. And 
they still at that point made a decision to cut their punter and and make this guy the 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 starter. And you only have one punter on a team. He was going to be their guy going forward. So detail. They they knew of some information. Then they said that they conducted an exhaustive or thorough, whatever terminology thorough was the word they used, thorough uh, investigation and determined that they were going to keep him. And what happens so often in the NFL, teams are reactionary, the league is reactionary. Once the once public opinion sways one way, then there is some discipline or some punishment. And in this case, it's easy to move on from a sixth round pick and a punter, one of the one of the positions in the league that you could go out there and, and find somebody who's not going to win. It's not going to determine for you a Super Bowl or not. I thought they waited too long to to make a decision to act. It was only forty eight hours, really, when you look back on it. Uh, after the civil lawsuit was filed, that they made that decision. They they had to. There was really nothing else that they could do in a case like this. But uh, to say that you conducted a thorough examination and then for all of these other details to come out within days after that and and not really talk to the lawyer of the victim after one initial conversation, I, I thought they bungled it. They didn't handle it well. But in the end, within 72 hours, they were able to move on and now focus on a season where this is a team that's got under a lot of pressure. You look around the league, everybody's pointing at the Buffalo Bills as the Super as, as the team to come out of the AFC. They got the best odds in Vegas to win the Super Bowl, and, and, and to me, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, and speaking of, they, they probably should have been in the Super Bowl last year. Had they not bungled the. Uh... Uh, last 13 seconds of that divisional game against the Chiefs. So um, let's let's go around the league quickly here, uh, especially here for fans here in upstate New York, the New York Giants, uh, a team that has really struggled the last few years. New coach, new general manager, same quarterback. I mean, how much rope does Daniel Jones have? You know, I'm really interested in, in seeing what the Giants can do this year with their new coach, because I'm really high on Brian Dable. And I, I thought that this this is a team, we, you know, you're very familiar mm-hmm. with what they were able, what he was able to accomplish in Buffalo and, and how he helped Josh Allen's career. And although the Giants um, are not giving, they, they're not banking on Daniel Jones going forward, they, they're giving themselves an opportunity to see for a year what they can do, what Brian Dable can do with Daniel Jones. And, and if he can have some success with him, uh, maybe he does become their quarterback of the future going forward. He's got the state Saquon Barkley uh, is a guy who came out of college and was doing tremendous things and got hurt. And he's going to be a big piece. He's healthy now. He's going to be a big part of that. And if they're able to, run the ball, run the ball well, run the ball successfully. That'll help Daniel Jones. That'll open some things up for him. I, I think Dable is, a, is an innovative offensive mind who can really get the best and maximize that talent that he has. And I know Tyrod Taylor was brought in as a experienced backup. And uh, if at any point Daniel Jones struggles, or so, they, they probably will feel comfortable turning the ball over to Tyrod Taylor. But uh, I look at it, NFC East, to me, that's got a lot of parity. Uh, a couple of years ago, 
it was the worst division in football, and Washington came out as the winner at seven and nine. And they they very well the Giants could have won that division at six and ten had the Eagles not tanked that final oh, game wait, of the oh, season. Oh, the tank! No, they didn't tank. Come on. <laughs> Uh, they, they 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 got those three that they moved up from uh, not, was it nine to six three extra spots in, in the draft just so they could get a, a, a half a half of Nate Sudfeld who then wasn't re-signed. But I think there's a lot of Ken. There's a lot of parity yeah. in this division. I, I think you can have four teams that are all within three games of each other. You can have the division winner Dallas or Philly at 10 and 7 and then you can have the last place team somewhere at 7 and 10 maybe even 8 and 9 but I, I feel comfortable where you would have four teams within three games of each other go, all going into to December with a shot at the divisions one way and depending on who's healthy who who's got their who's got their key players playing well at that point in the season can come out of this division. So uh, I like the Giants this year, improving on that 4 and 13 finish last year. I don't know that, I don't think they're going to be a playoff team, but I think they got a real, real opportunity to be in that 7 8 win range. And that's improvement. And that's what you look for in, in year one of a rebuild with a new coach and Brian Dable and a new GM. Yeah, I mean, I, you look at this division. Like you said, I mean, you know, Jalen Hurts is, you know, people still wondering if he's a, a capable quarterback. Uh, the Cowboys, you know, McCarthy's probably on a uh, hot seat there. And then Washington has uh, Carson Wentz, maybe his last chance at trying to prove that uh, he's over whatever, whatever struggles he has. Yeah, and, and when you, and you look at what Washington did with Carson Wentz, bringing in a quarterback, who, when you look at the numbers last year, Ken twenty-seven and seven, pretty damn good season. Yeah, that's <laughs> a pretty that's a pretty darn good year. Now, I I know those last two games of the year, they lost to Jacksonville. Uh, previously, the game before that, they lost to the Raiders, and that cost them a chance at the playoffs. And, and there's no there's no excuses for losing in Jacksonville. Carson was terrible. So was the offensive line. So was the entire team in that game. And and I think what happened. Uh, in, in Indianapolis with Carson, despite his relationship with Frank Reich and Frank wanting to keep him there, it was it was ownership. It was Jim Ursay who uh, wanted to move on, and, and I know that some of that had to do with Carson Wentz not being vaccinated. Carson isn't Jim Ursay's kind of guy. Uh, I said this before, I'll say it again. He's not going to be uh, pounding beers with offensive linemen. He's not going to be doing shots with uh, uh, anyone. He, he doesn't drink. He's not that guy. Mm-hmm. If, and if, if, if the owner looks for a certain kind of player, uh, wants a certain kind of energy uh, under center, um, he, he may not be getting that from Carson Wentz. He's not going to get in a huddle and, and be breaking it down and dropping F-bomb after F-bomb. It's just not who he is, and that doesn't fit every, what everyone is looking for. So they moved on. They did well. They got Matt Ryan, albeit towards the end of his career. But, hey, in the NFL, at 37 years old, as a quarterback, you probably – if you keep yourself in great shape, and we've seen that with Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady, you could play a few more good seasons, and you could win certainly uh, your share of big games. So I think the Colts made out decently, but uh, I believe that Carson Wentz is going to have a decent year with Washington and keep them in contention. I look at them the same way. I look at the Giants, maybe a little a game better, eight nine win range somewhere in that area. You know what's interesting? 
the, the Cowboys bring in Jason Peters, 40-year-old left tackle, yeah. former Eagle, potentially a Hall of Famer. And I, I think that signing, I was I was debating, Ken, the Cowboys-Eagles for the division. I think that Jason Peters signing by the Cowboys wins the division for the Eagles because he's shot. I don't see – he doesn't have much left. No, he has nothing and we left. we saw that. <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't have much left. And I, I don't know how he's going to be able to protect that Prescott's blind side. So I think that signing by the Cowboys gives the Eagles the NFC East. Well, let's go around to your division winners and uh, start with the NFC. Uh, I, I haven't finished them. They're all going to come out this week, okay, but it's pretty simple, right, gotcha. Ken? It's pretty simple. When you look at the the NFC North, you, you go with the you go with Aaron Rodgers and the Green Bay Packers, mm-hmm. and I, I don't think you can argue uh, against that. If you look at the NFC South, I'm going to go with Tampa Bay, and you're going to go with Tom Brady, and you look at the Buccaneers, and I know they got a rash of injuries on that offensive line right now. That offensive line is, is, is banged up, but Tom Brady's the, the, the big X factor, and, and there's a big drop-off from the Bucks to the, the Saints, the Panthers, and the Falcons. Now, the NFC West, you got the Rams coming in, defending Super Bowl champions, had a couple key losses, but also uh, a team that's built to continue winning. Uh, San Francisco, for me, the, the drop-off from Jimmy G, I thought all along that the best thing they can do was keep Garoppolo in San Francisco. I'm not sold on Trey Lance. I look at Jimmy Garoppolo as a guy who was a dropped interception away from leading the 49ers to the Super Bowl again. Matthew Stafford threw a ball that should have been picked by Jakeski Tart. He dropped it. Rams go on, score, win the game. The Niners would have been in the Super Bowl. So uh, I think the Niners can contend. I don't know what Trey Lance is going to be. But by keeping Jimmy Garoppolo there, they set themselves up to be a legitimate uh, legitimate contender in that division. I'll still stick with the Rams. In the AFC East, Buffalo Bills got a ton of pressure. They also got a ton of talent. So I'm going to go with the Bills coming out of the AFC, uh, AFC East. The North is one, Ken, where I'm still tossing between the Bengals and the Ravens. Mm-hmm. The Steelers, to me, and the Browns will be playing for third and fourth. But the Ravens have a a lot of talent. I I look at the Bengals, who obviously made it to the Super Bowl, and they're an extremely talented team as well. There's always that team that when you lose the Super Bowl, there's kind of like that Super Bowl hangover coming off the loss the following year. I think that might bite the Bengals a little bit. I've always been big on... John Harbaugh, his his teams just he's such he's a winner. He's a great coach. Lamar Jackson, we still don't know how his contract situation is going to play out. So I'm leaning towards the Baltimore Ravens in the AFC North. Uh, when you go over to the South, Tennessee, Indianapolis. Uh, I'm going to go with the Colts and, and Matt Ryan. I think there could be a situation in Tennessee with Ryan Tannehill, where you may end up seeing Malik Willis playing and, and at some point in, during the season uh, and being the guy that they look for towards the future. I like the addition of, of Matt Ryan in Indianapolis. Uh, I think this was a talented team that should have been a division winner last year. They had things that fell apart on them. Uh, I'll take the Colts. And then we go out to the loaded West, man. Oh, and man, and yeah. the <laughs> Right, Ken, you look at the AFC West, and as loaded as it is, I've always been a to-be-the-man, right? As Ric Flair once said, I don't know if you're a wrestling yeah, guy, but to-be-the-man, yeah. be <laughs> to be you got to beat the man. Until someone dethrones the Kansas City Chiefs, 
I'm going to stick with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. I know they lost Tyreek Hill, but they still got Travis Kelsey. They got Mahomes, who's got a ton of talent. And, and, and I, I love Eric Bieniemy as an offensive coordinator. I had a chance to sit down with him a couple of weeks ago and, and talk. And I just think that this guy is so underrated. He still hasn't gotten a job, gotten an opportunity to be a head coach. But the fact that he's still there, I think, is, is helpful. And, and I'll, I'll go with the Chiefs until somebody dethrones him. Wild card picks quickly. Man, wild card picks. Uh, it. In, in the NFC, whoever doesn't win that East, if it's in the East, if it's not if it's not Dallas and the, and the Eagles, uh, I, I'm going to take the Eagles, as I said. Mm-hmm. So I'll take Dallas to get in there. I'll take the Niners to get in. And I, I, I always like a surprise team, right? There's always a surprise team, and I don't I don't know if, if that could be. You know, Arizona's given, there wouldn't be much of a surprise. Kyler Murray got that big contract. He better win. He got in there. But I'm not a, I'm not a big Kyler Murray guy. I, I just feel like Kyler Murray is, is a, he, he's undersized. They've always struggled in the second half. And, and I, I want to go between the Cardinals. Uh, I want to look at the Saints. And potentially Washington, and I think it'll be one of those three teams that gets that final wild card. So the Saints, Arizona, and Washington. If Carson Wentz can turn things around and and, and have a full season, he could very well be that guy that comes out. And uh, in the in the AFC, the wild cards. You, you look at the loaded AFC West. You got to take the Chargers. You have to take. The the AFC North team that doesn't win the division, and that would be if I'm taking the Ravens, I'm going to take the Bengals to get in there. So I'm going to go Bengals and Chargers, and now Miami with Tua and Tyreek Hill and all the changes they made, uh, and the third one Raiders. Russell Wilson, can he be that impactful to get them to the playoffs? Uh, it's going to be a, a major toss up for that third one. Not not ready yet. Give me a day or two, mm-hmm. but it's either going to be obviously Miami, L- Las Vegas Raiders, Denver. Uh, I don't think it'll be the AFC South team. I think you only get one way. You get one team out of there, whether it's the whether it's the Titans or the Colts. I went with the Colts. I don't think the Titans will get in. So uh, it's going to that's going to be the most interesting race is who doesn't get in in the AFC because you have such a loaded loaded conference and then teams if, if they don't get in if Miami fails with all the all the moves that they made and all that they're banking on and expecting from Tua could this be it for him would that be would they want to move on if he can't get them into the playoffs so there, there's a lot of there might be some major changes coming depending upon who doesn't make the playoffs in the AFC and who's playing the Super Bowl and wins it uh, I made a decision a few years ago Ken that as long as Tom Brady's playing, I'm always going to pick him. Okay. And as long as Tom Brady's playing, it's an even year, an even Super Bowl year. I, he's won it every other year for the last six years. So I'm, I'm going to go with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's a little bit of a, a sentimental pick because uh, I don't want to pick against them. I'll go with the Buccaneers and the Buffalo Bills. I think the Buffalo Bills do get there, but uh, they're still a year away from winning it all. Rob, where can people find you on social media and some other things that you do? 
can easily just go to at Rob Motti on Twitter and uh, and also on Facebook and, and Instagram is at Real Rob Motti. But uh, all sports fans follow you really on Twitter. You get all my uh, posts and everything else there. APnews.com, all of our stories, everything that we do goes there. I got the AP Pro Football Podcast. Uh, it it's a, comes out weekly, comes out every Thursday morning, wherever podcasts are found. Had a great interview last week with uh, Aaron Donald. First interview after the helmet swinging <laughs> incident. Uh, he wasn't much prepared for that one. I don't know how, Ken. I don't know how you don't prepare a guy. like You're about exactly. to do an interview. <laughs> Your first interview you're going to do since you tossed the helmet and you don't expect to be asked about it. Like, come on, man. Uh, so he was on it. Uh, Drew Rosenhaus was on it last week. And this week I, I got a uh, – and also uh, Sauce Gardner from the New York Jets was on last mm-hmm. week. And this week I've got Adrian Peterson – um, Eli Manning might be on. I'm supposed to talk to him in a couple of days, so hopefully that that'll plan out, pan out, and uh, you can check those out also wherever podcasts are found. The AP Pro Football Podcast. Well, Rob, I appreciate you doing this, and hopefully we'll be able to talk again during the season and uh, have fun. And I know you're living in the same state as Tim Reynolds. My condolences. <laughs> <laughs> no, Tim's a good guy. He's from upstate New York, so we always bust on him. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim's loving life in, uh, in South Beach. He's got his hands full, man. He's got a, a lot on his plate in Miami Heat, the Dolphins. He's got everything. We finally got him a little bit more help coverage uh, there in Miami. But Tim's a good dude. Well, pre- Rob, appreciate it again, and thanks, and uh, we'll talk soon. You got it, Ken. Right, that's Rob Motti. I'll have uh, my prediction for the 2022 NFL season in just a moment. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. I've got a math question for you. When you add tolerance, subtract prejudice, and multiply efforts to treat one another with respect, what do you get? Less division. And school sports have it down to a science. Looking for an example of what can happen when we realize there's more that unites us than divides us? Look no further than high school sports in New York. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Back to wrap up the podcast, and before we do, I want to give you my picks for the NFL season. Let's start in the AFC. The East Division winner will be the Bills. In the West, it'll be the Chiefs. The North will be won by the Bengals. And the Colts will take the South. My uh, wild card teams will be the Chargers, the Ravens, and the Raiders. Let's move over to the NFC. We're in the NFC East. I'm going with my Eagles to win the the East. Uh, In the West, I'm going to go with the Rams. It's going to be a tight uh, battle there between the Rams, 49ers, and Cardinals. In the North, the Packers, I mean, unless one of the other three teams decides to start playing football, I don't see the Packers uh, losing the North. And in the South, i got to go with Tampa Bay. As long as Tom Brady is uh, still playing as well as he has, I think you can't uh, knock them off. Uh, my uh, wild card teams, uh, I'm going to go with the Cowboys in the East. The 49ers, I think, will get in there. And I'm going to go with the Cardinals. I think the Cardinals are going to have a decent year. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, my Super Bowl picks... I got to go with Buffalo and Tampa Bay, and I, I know Rob Motti went with that, but I'm going to go with Buffalo 
finally winning a Super Bowl. So we'll see what happens come February. Of course, uh, I'm not known to be successful on my picks, so we'll see what happens uh, with my picks. So you can come back to me in January if you tell me as I was wrong. So anyway, so wrap things up here, and we'll have another podcast, more NFL previews coming up in the next day or two. I'll have Dennis Wozak Jr. of the Associated Press. He covers the Jets and, of course, one of the other great AP NFL uh, writers that they have. He'll be on to talk about the Jets season. And uh, Brady Farkas, uh, Shenandoah grad and host of the uh, Brady Farkas show on uh, WDEV in Burlington. He'll t- uh, discuss the Patriots. So we'll talk about uh, the interesting times going on in New England. So that'll wrap this podcast up. I appreciate you listening. And uh, this reminder is always, the views expressed in the Party Shots podcast are not necessarily those of the Daily Gazette Company. Party Shots Podcast is a production of the Daily Gazette Company. I'm sports editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Party Shots Podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good football.